It's longer time. Yay! Yay. Lager Time, Poems, Stories and Thoughts, by me, Paul Cree. Who else? Greetings, bonjour, what's happening? Welcome to Lager Time, Stories, Poems, Beats, Bars and Banter. I'm still in flux, currently sat in Plumstead at my in-laws where I've been mostly for the last couple of weeks. Was back in Maidstone yesterday and now I'm back here again. Needs must, life and that. Off to a wedding this weekend in York, never been there before. I've heard it's pretty, hopefully they've got a Witherspoons. This week has been a little quieter. I've been feeling tired. Either it's the heat and the excesses of last week or some kind of post-COVID gastroenteritis effects, but I'm wiped out. But I'm okay. We're here. My wife's back. Dogs are okay. We crack on, mate. Last night, I was back with the BAC Beatbox Academy, who I've worked with on and off for over 10 years now. I was helping some of the younger ones get ready for their curtain raiser performance for the Frankenstein How to Make a Monster show at the Regent's Park Open Air Theatre this Monday. If you're not aware of this show, it's a modern retelling of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein all done through beatbox, rap, spoken word and movement. It's won multiple awards and toured all over the gaff and this may well be your last chance to see it. It's a banger. The success of that show has had an unprecedented effect on many people, myself included. Though I've been around the academy for years, I work closely with the director Comrade Murray and I've known most of the cast for many years. I was not involved with the development of the show. Yet prior to Covid, when it was winning every award going, people would come up to me and congratulate me for it. It was a strange time, but I was delighted for my pal all the cast and all the young guys from the academy that I did work with who got to go on stage and perform before the main show when it ran at BAC in 2019. That whole period of 2018 to 2020 when we were doing High Rise, Frankenstein and all sorts of other projects was nuts. So it's been nice that, in a way, it's come back around again. It's not the same of course, but that's cool. I worked with a young person last week in Manchester who's part of the academy who I've not seen since before Covid and it was great to see her so it feels like I'm reconnecting again which is good I'm dropping the second track from the 96 EP this week called The Colour Orange which I suppose is a story about family and roots and class all set around the time of Euro 96 while it may feel like I'm rehashing old bits in a minute there will be some fresher stuff coming. I'm starting to learn some of these newer poems with a view of putting a set together for this live stream. I should set a date really, shouldn't I? Let's say September for now. Anyway, that'll do. Have a banging weekend. Paul.
And yeah. uh, how have you been doing that exactly? Well, you see, I believe in mind power. Mm. There's no doubt in my mind that millions of viewers can transmit their positive energy to the players. And actually what we'll do is before I leave, we're going to do... He's on telly again. Yuri Geller, the man with the permanent suntan, funny accent, white teeth and shiny face. Often seen on TV bending spoons with his mind, like some sort of bastard child of Magneto and the tubular bells guy, dangerously mixed with that suspect cheery disposition that I only see in travelling Christian theatre companies bouncing around my school stage, singing it in the valleys and shouting it from the mountaintops. The spoon bender is now enticing me to touch a big orange spot on my screen. This strange man seems to be smeared all over television, like the Oxytenna I apply badly to my face each morning before school, looking in the mirror too scared to pop spots and wondering who Adam is and why is he stuck an apple in my throat. Each time I swallow it looks like a satsuma's being slipped down the inside of a snake. The man with the permanent suntan, funny accent, white teeth and shiny face is making yet another TV appearance on the special edition of the Badil and Skinner fantasy football show, which I am watching, sat in the living room, on the well-worn settee, on my own. Apparently if I touch this big orange spot, Yuri Geller will act like a scart lead and channel all that positive energy from televisions around the nation towards the England football team. It's Euro 96. They're playing Scotland the very next day. My grandpa is from Scotland. My older brother supports Scotland. He doesn't support England. He supports the other team when England play and that really gets on my nerves. There's a lot at stake for this game. I sink down onto the floral pattern badly faded settee like a fence, watching the screen picking splinters from my spleen. I roll my eyes up to the lopsided white wooden shelf on the back wall on which sits a small collection of my 13th birthday cards, which have now managed to last for three days. They all seem to have the same picture of a hand-drawn school locker with loads of sports equipment hanging out. Stood next to the cards in a permanent place is a small statue of the Virgin Mary from Lourdes, which contains some holy water and two decorative plates, which stand upright like shields and contain pictures of both Glasgow and Belfast. Belfast is where my granddad comes from. Underneath the lopsided white wooden shelf is the TV, a small 14-inch black Philips box which doesn't have a remote and sometimes the buttons get stuck and don't work. But like a Top Gun fighter pilot target in sight, my eyes lock back onto the orange spot on the screen, sat on the settee. The man with the permanent suntan, funny accent, white teeth and shiny face is enticing me. Reach out and touch faith, that song says. I'm not sure what to believe, but I'm willing to give it a go. Mum and Dad probably won't like it as I'm sure it goes against the teachings of the church, but so far God hasn't answered any of my prayers about girls and I've only just got a Sega Mega Drive. It's 1996. My best friend Richard has already got rid of his and now has a Sega Saturn. And as for my teeth, I must be at the back of the longest queue in history because I haven't seen an orthodontist yet. My teeth still look like Stonehenge and Richard calls me Goofy. I slowly rise, walk towards the telly and stick my sweaty little palm on a stack of the glass, right on the orange spot. I'm doing it for England. I want England to win. It's the following day and I'm now at Richard's house. He's got a much bigger TV, it's massive. 
He also has Sky, the satellite dishes outside his bedroom on the wall. And apparently, at night time, for 10 minutes, there's a secret channel where you get to see naked women. He also watches WWF. After make do with WCW on ITV. His parents actually like football and on Sunday they take him to games and watch him play. They don't go to church. And he has barbecues in his garden and holidays to Florida and places in Spain where they have outdoor water parks that Richard reckons are way better than the Croydon Water Palace. My family sit around playing guitars and other weird instruments with strings and sing silly sounding songs in Irish accents. I rode my brand new bike up to Richard's which I got for my birthday. I say new, it's second hand, but it's my first ever mountain bike. It's got Shimano gears and Rhino wheels. Richard's got two mountain bikes. He keeps one spare. We're both lying on our bellies in his living room, eyes fixed on his massive TV, awaiting the two arch enemies to commence battle. I'm nervous. I want England to win. I didn't want to watch the game at home, as I knew my older brother would be there in his Celtic shirt and Scotland scarf. And my dad, who doesn't really like football, but will still watch the big games without taking sides. And when a player rolls around the floor pretending to be injured, he'll say, ach, just like my grandpa does. I needed to be amongst my own. I want England to win. The first 45 flies by with turbulence. At halftime, it's nil-nil and it's tense. And the commentator is telling us that Jamie Redknapp is coming on from off the bench. His instructions are to keep hold of the ball in midfield so the fullbacks can get forward. Richard and I erupt when Gary Neville swings in across from the right flank which Alan Shearer heads in the net to put England 1-0 up. Rolling round on the floor, Richard trying to put me in the headlock and punch me. I never thought Jamie Redknapp would have such an impact on my little life. Minutes later, out of nowhere, Scotland suddenly get a penalty. Gary McAllister steps up and places the ball on the spot. An expert executioner if ever there was one. I'm nervous. But as he takes the few paces just before he strikes, the ball moves ever so slightly. And when he connects, he hits it and Seaman saves and we erupt all over again. It's still 1-0 and I'm trying to put Richard in the headlock now, rolling round on the carpet. Now apparently, at that very moment, hovering above Wembley in a helicopter, holding one of Bobby Moore's England cats was the man with the permanent suntan, funny accent, white teeth and shiny face who told me to touch the orange spot. It must have been him that made the ball move. And when Jamie Redknapp plays a sweeping pass flicked on by Darren Anderson into the path of an advancing Paul Gascoigne, who in two amazing moves deftly clips the ball over Colin Hendry's head and then volleys the ball in the back of the net, Richard and I explode and go running around his garden shouting our heads off. game's finished now. England won. I'm getting on my bike and all I can think about is claiming those rare bragging rights when I get home. As I know my older brother was watching it. I start riding. Cars in the street are beeping. I can hear people singing everywhere that Badil and Skinner song, Football's Coming Home. And displayed all over the place is the white and red flag of St George. Which until Euro 96, I'd not really seen before. But now it's on almost every house. It's a good day to be English. I ride my brand new second hand bike back home. Can't wait to see my brother's face. I put my bike in the shed and coming through the back door into the kitchen. I can hear my dad on the phone, probably to grandpa. I hear a few ucks, which more or less confirms my suspicions. 
Grandpa normally rings around this time on a Saturday, just before Mum and Dad go to church. My brother is sat in the living room, still on the sofa wearing his Celtic shirt and Scotland scarf. Sunk so low into the settee I can barely see his body. He's watching the news. Gazza's goal is doing loop the loop. I pause by the door. He looks dejected. And I suddenly feel like I've said something to upset someone. Except I haven't said anything. Yet. But I feel bad. So I decide not to gloat. I try and make light of it by telling him how I touched the orange spot on the telly the night before and that the man with the permanent suntan, funny accent, white teeth and shiny face was hovering in a helicopter above Wembley and must have made Gary McAllister miss his penalty. My brother doesn't look at me. He stays slumped on the settee looking at the telly and mumbles some words about the orange spot. Something about church and mum and dad. He then says something that I don't really understand but I know it's bad about Belfast, Grandpa, Granddad, marches and some people called loyalists. I can hear my dad calling me from the hall to go and speak to Grandpa. I remind myself that my new bike has got Shimano gears and rhino horns and that it was four miles to Richard's house, so that's eight miles in total that I rode today. And I tell myself that it's probably best that I don't mention the score. It's longer time. Yay. Longer time. Poems, stories, and thoughts. By me, Paul Cree. Who else?